Jesus is very interesting in the sorts of people that he chooses to make examples of his faith and love and his commitment towards his people. You would think that, I mean, let's just be real in this room, okay? I'm not saying everybody, but for the majority of us, okay, we find ourselves kind of in the middle, you know, and you could go up and down, right? But we're relatively middle class, right? And you would think that it would be so much more convenient if the people that Jesus met in Scripture were just average middle class folks. And while certainly they were almost always a part of the crew and the gathering and the sort of folks that were represented in the crowds, Jesus always has a knack for choosing people who are very much not on what you consider the normal end of your social spectrum to minister to. And yet he always chooses these people to bring to light something that we, everyone here in this room, finds common with these people that we feel like we may not be able to relate with initially. And as we look at our passage today, the group of people that we're going to encounter through the ministry and life of Jesus is a group of people called lepers. Everyone say lepers. First time I heard that, I thought it was a category of people who were like leopards, you know, like, oh, like how can people and animals be in similar classes, right? And of course, it's a misunderstanding and mispronunciation of, of the word itself. Lepers, not leopards, right? Lepers, right? Now, I want to just read for you a description of what the leper community was like, okay? This is a quote from a website called Got Questions, okay? This is what they say. They say, in the Israelite community, when a person discovered a rash or skin disorder, he or she had to go to the priest for examination. The priest then determined whether this was a contagious disease and whether the person was to be declared ceremonially unclean. Jewish law prohibited anyone with such a disease from associating with the general community. They had to be isolated and many times lived as outcasts until they died. And this was necessary in order to keep infectious diseases from becoming an epidemic. But for those afflicted, it could be a life sentence. Now, to be a leper back in the day was as though you had received a death sentence. You were no longer able to partake in the normal workings of the community. You were effectively outcasted because of your physical conditions, because the people were scared that you might infect someone else. And so it was customary for these lepers to often be found on the outskirts of the towns, often begging for food from those who were coming by, begging for funds, money, and these things just so that they could continue to live. And people out of their good wills would often do so, right? Because hospitality was a high value in the first century. But you see, being a leper didn't just mean you were outcasted physically, but it meant you were outcasted socially as well. Most religious people in the first century believed that if you were struck with leprosy, it was a result of either some generational sin that had taken place before you were born in your ancestors, or it was a manifestation of your own personal sins that were coming out physically at the time. And so to be called a leper, to be a leper infected in the skin, people also assumed that you were infected not only physically, but you were infected internally. It was a difficult, difficult place to be, to be a leper. And perhaps when we look at these lepers in scripture, you might think to yourself, my goodness, I don't share in any sense of the word from what these lepers have in common. But let me tell you something. There is one thing that brings us together with these lepers. These lepers for years upon years, some for decades upon decades, just sit 
on the outskirts of town waiting for a healing. Waiting for a deliverance. Waiting for an answer. Because they, these lepers that is, have been hearing the stories about this man named Jesus. Who is this Jesus who goes around healing the sickest of the sick, the deaf, the mute, the blind, the crippled, and the lame? And as we look at today's text, although you might say, I'm not a leper. I don't share in any of these things. But I want to suggest today that we might actually find something in common with these lepers. And that commonality is a longing for breakthrough. Longing for healing. Longing for deliverance from some sort of circumstance. And today, as we hone in on the text, what I want to discover with us together today are two types of deliverances that Jesus tunes our attention to today. Two types of deliverances, two types of healings, two types of breakthroughs for us to be able to understand the heart of God as we encounter the text for today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 17, or you could scroll in your phones over to Luke 17. And when you're there, let me hear you say, I'm there. Love it. Again, that's Luke chapter 17, verses 11 and on. Here's a reading of God's word as we start in verse 11. It says this, On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, once again, as I say this every week, whenever we're going through a narrative of God's word, you got to read the Bible for what it's saying. And the Bible is really weird sometimes. Okay, now that might not be the most appropriate thing for me to say as a pastor, but I'm just telling you from my perspective that often when I read God's word, I go, huh, now that's not an everyday occurrence. It's not an everyday sighting, right? You see 10 lepers who have been waiting outside of town for God knows how many years, waiting for a breakthrough, waiting for a moment for God to finally look on them, to recognize them, to acknowledge their existence. Because again, people would walk by and they might fling some coins from a distance to just say, well, I hope you get through today. But nobody would stop to talk to them. Nobody would stop to get to know them. Nobody would stop to acknowledge these people as people. They're just lepers they're described by their condition not their humanity and so jesus starts rolling through and much like anyone else in this room do you remember the first time you heard about jesus you probably had some really new believer friend y'all guys have a new believer friend the kind of wild-eyed you know they kind of look a little crazy because they just got back from a retreat they've probably been praying for like 25 hours a day right they come to you and they go hey 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 How's it going? Like, oh man, something's weird about my friend today, right? And they start talking to you. They go, you doing okay? Good. I want to talk to you about somebody, right? Have you heard of Jesus, right? They never say Jesus, right? Have you heard about Jesus? They go, have you heard about Jesus? And they give you the talk. They give you the gospel. They start talking to you about how great and how awesome this man is. And depending on your condition and your desperation, you're either going to say, oh, I really want to meet this guy. Or you're going to go, eh, check, put the brakes on. 
I'll look for him later when the time comes, right? We all got different testimonies as we come to this place. But here, when you look at the 10 lepers, they're definitely on the desperate side. They've heard of this man who goes around healing the unlikeliest people, the untouchables among untouchables. And so upon seeing Jesus walking down past town, they cry out to him and they rightly acknowledge him saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Now that's, that is an appropriate confession. They recognize that they have nothing to offer Jesus. It's not like they can exchange something for the healing that he could potentially give. So all they could ask for is just him to do anything. Talk to me. Look at me. Stand by me. Acknowledge me. Be with me. And it says in verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. <laughs> Can you imagine this healing taking place? It's like if you have a scab, right? Well, if you're a leper, you have lots of scabs, right? Because again, it's a rash. It's an infectious skin condition. Some even describe being a leper as a, Have you guys ever gotten like those cold sores before? It's like having cold sores all over your body. And it is as though Jesus tells these men, go and show yourselves to the priests. You got to have some measure of faith. Let's give it to the 10 lepers. Sometimes people say some crazy things, right? But they believe him at his word because they acknowledge that he is someone more than just a normal human. So they say, all right. And they start running towards the priests. Now, the reason why Jesus tells them to go to the priests is because the priests during that time were the only people who could acknowledge officially whether they were lepers or not. And so these would be the only people who could confirm the healing to be true. And so these 10 lepers have enough faith and courage to get up from that place where they probably haven't left in years and they start walking into town. They're actually breaking off chains. They're walking into the proper identity that Jesus is releasing them unto. We are not lepers, but we are walking unto wholeness. Physically, Jesus is meeting our immediate need. And as they begin to walk towards town, the scales begin to fall. And the skin begins to heal. That's crazy because, like I mentioned last week, Jesus heals people never the same way twice. Like I said, when you read the Bible for what it is, it's crazy. Sometimes Jesus goes, are you blind? <laughs> Rhetorical question. Yes, I am. He goes, I'll give you what you asked for. That's my translation. And someone like blind Bartimaeus starts seeing again. There's a deaf person. And Jesus, knowing that this person needs healing, goes and gets some mud, slaps it together, rolls it up, and he gives him a wet willy. And it says the man begins to hear again. And in today's case, Jesus says, walk towards your church. And when you get there, let them confirm that you've been healed. It's amazing. It's amazing the way that Jesus is so willing to provide a healing. No strings attached. So when we look at at least the first level of deliverance that the text presents today is that Jesus does care about our immediate needs. 
Jesus cares about our immediate needs to help us in the deliverance of those things. Now, this isn't to say that every time you ask for something from God, Lord, deliver me from my predicament, deliver me from the situation that God is going to give it to you. But what we discover here is that Jesus doesn't blink an eye when he looks to the plight of people to acknowledge them where they are at. See, sometimes when we talk about healing and deliverance, especially when it comes to our physical and immediate needs, people often fall into two extremes. On the one extreme, people say, God doesn't need to do that for you. So don't ever ask him. Yet I find that to be unbiblical because when you read in passages like Matthew chapter 6, it says that Jesus knows the numbers of hairs on your head and he knows every need. So you're free to ask him what you will. God is our father. He is a loving, gracious father. He doesn't stop us from bringing every single need that we have in front of him. Yet on the other side, if you go to another extreme, you have folks who will teach and say, you should ask God for everything and he will give it to you. But if he doesn't give it to you, it means that you don't have enough faith. And we find that to be unbiblical and not coherent to who God the Father is. God is not our puppet. That's why we call him God. We'd have another word for him if he were the case. Call him genie. Gift giver. We would identify him as such. But no, he's God. And he's free to give whatever he wishes, whatever he doesn't. And again, if I touch upon even what, my, what I preached on last week about the wilderness, oftentimes God is the only one who is loving enough to perhaps even in different seasons of our lives, remove certain gifts, remove certain privileges, remove certain certainties in hopes that we might actually go to him as our greatest need, himself. But again, as we return to the text today, what is astounding is that Jesus doesn't discriminate against these lepers who arguably people would look at and say, you have no right to ask God because you're cursed. And yet Jesus goes and he undoes the curse. He undoes the leprosy that they might find and regain their humanity. Now, if the story just ended here, something would feel like it's missing. Because you have 10 people who just got healed and they're walking away. <laughs> they're walking away from Jesus. Peace. Not even looking back. Thank you. I receive it in faith. Right? Sometimes we like to do that with our gifts, do we not? We go, Lord, you pray hard. You pray long. And I actually think the issue that we face in our deliverance and in our healings is not actually getting it, but it's what we do after we get it. You know, I want to say that one more time. I don't think the issue that we commonly face is like getting oftentimes what we are praying for, but it's what happens after we receive that very thing. I want to continue on in verse 15. It says, and then one of them, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Scripture doesn't waste a single word when it comes to these descriptions. So again, we pick up in the narrative. You have 10 people. Ah! Have, you, have you ever received like a gift of your life? I'm like 31, okay? 
But when I get gifts, I still get really happy and kiddish inside. I pray that the Lord would never remove the child in me. Amen. I'm telling you, man, when I get a dope gift, sorry, am I allowed to say that as a pastor? When I receive a dope gift, okay, I'm trying to contextualize. I'm going to express my gratitude. I'm going to express my joy. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, that's, that's like kind of, it's kind of awkward, right? It's like the tone down, tame, but, but I'm trying to show a little bit, okay? I'm like super happy, okay? Man, like, when I get, I mean, I mean, who doesn't like gifts, okay? These people just received the gift of a lifetime. Ah, they're going to the priest. They're going into town. They're saying, hey, look at you. Look at you guys. You used to make fun of us. Look at me now. Ha. Booyah. In your face. Just met Jesus. Right. But as these 10 folks are running. One begins to think to himself. Maybe I ought to thank the guy who just gave this gift to me. Maybe I ought to go back to the person who offered this deliverance and healing. And give him a word of thanks. The text is intentional in pointing out that only one of them returned. Because you see, the problem that Luke, that Dr. Luke is trying to point out for us, is that the problem isn't receiving the gift, it's what you do after you get it. Because the vast majority of us get so happy about what we get, we forget about the one who has given the gift to us. We forget the giver, we just remember the gift. Additionally, the text highlights that he was a Samaritan. Quick recap for you. Samaritans at this point in time in New Testament history with Jesus are the most hated people against the Jews. Really, you couldn't have two groups of people who hated each other more. Samaritans in the history of Israel, were those people who kind of went sideways in Old Testament history, and they began to intermingle with different nations, different, not God-fearing nations, but people who hated Israel. They mingled with them, and you now had this group of people who had a mixture of, like, Jewish ethnicity, but they're also mixed with a lot of different ethnic backgrounds and other ethnic backgrounds that weren't particularly favored by the Jews. And so these Samaritans are what you call mutts. They're mixes. They're not one or the other. And so Jews who consider themselves purebred, like really we are the Jewish of Jews. We are the people who are going to lead the way with God and such not. Of course you don't like the Samaritans because you feel like they're less of people. And yet what's profound about that sentence when it says now he was a Samaritan tells us that probably in the group of those 10 lepers were not just Samaritans, but they're also Jews. They're also people who you would expect to get it. It's the churchgoers. It's the people who we might encounter in these very seats. People who've been brought up and raised in the faith, but might have had an unfortunate circumstance that has led them to seek a breakthrough. But out of their entitlement to their religion, out of their entitlement to their ethnic background, out of entitlement to their culture, they say, thanks for the gift. It's mine. It's mine to take. And they walk away from Jesus. They walk away from the giver. But instead, the unlikeliest of people 
the Samaritan, who was supposed to be an enemy of Jesus, the person who's not supposed to get it, the people who are scared to walk into church because they feel like church people are going to judge them, is the first one to step in front of Jesus because he recognizes he has no business receiving this healing. So he comes in front of Jesus, praising God with a loud voice. You know, sometimes when people praise God with a loud voice, it can be obnoxious. You ever met that worshiper? Oh, why is he so loud? Does he have that much to be thankful for, right? I know we're, we're like predominantly Asian in this room, right? And, and, and I don't know about you, okay? But when I've been in like Asian churches, I grew up in Asian church my whole life, right? You'll be worshiping, right? And everyone has like what, you, what I call like threshold decibel, right? Like, reckless love. But then you have the guy who goes, reckless love. Jesus, I love you. It's like, okay, we get your point, brother. Inside voices. Keep it to yourself. Tell God, not the rest of us. But you know, over the years, I've come to appreciate obnoxious worship, so to speak. Okay? I'll tell you why. Because you have to really just care about God and not the people around you to go to such places. Desperation calls for desperate measures. I mentioned blind Bartimaeus earlier, too, who was an unlikely recipient of Jesus' healing on his way to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus can't even see. He just hears that Jesus is coming through town. And as the crowds are swarming to just go, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus coming through. You hear this blind guy from the recesses of the crowd shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps saying it over and over again. And the text says that people start telling him to shut up. And Jesus says, I want to listen to that man. The Samaritan recognizes he doesn't deserve it. You know, sometimes church people, we feel like we deserve God the most. We hear so long, oh man, you are a child of God. True. True. We are children of God. Please, this is not the time for confusion. Are we children of God? Absolutely. Amen. Whew. Man, making me worried about my, my, my. How well I'm doing, okay? We are children of God. There's no doubt about it. See, but sometimes the, the balance that we have to walk through is that as much as we are children of God, it doesn't mean that we're suddenly allowed to exercise entitlement in front of God either. This doesn't mean you can't ask. Well, I love it. Well, my son, yo, when I, when I, the moment I became a daddy, everything changed. Right? When my son comes and he asks for something, I'm like, oh, you can ask for anything. I don't know if I'll give everything to you, but you can ask daddy for anything. Okay? Entitlement doesn't come because you ask. Entitlement comes because you demand what you ask for. And you expect that you must have it. That's, that's tough because a lot of us, as we're building our identity as children of God, we feel like God's love it's contingent on him giving us everything we ask for. Friends, let me tell you something. If God gave me everything I asked for, I'd be dead. I'm so thankful that I follow a God who's wise enough to give me, well, let me put it this way, to give me what I don't ask for, but often to not give me what I ask for. That's a good dad. 
If my son goes, Daddy, let me play in the street. And I said, because I love you, son, go in the middle of the street and don't come back. You would look at me and say, you're a terrible parent. See, we can't understand the reasons why God withholds different things at different times. But let me tell you something. He's the only one wise enough. He's the only one sovereign enough. And at the same time, he's the only one loving enough to withhold and still be the most gracious, kind God. One of the things that I feel like we have to work on as a church, people who get used to our relationship with God, is to hear once again the words that God gives to Moses in Deuteronomy. When God saves Israel and Moses from Egypt, the constant reminder that he gives as he's walking out of Egypt and into Canaan, into the promised land, is he says, remember, remember when I brought you out of Egypt Remember when I brought you out of that land. Remember when I brought you out of the hand of Pharaoh. You know why God keeps saying that? I know we got some smart people in this room. Smart people, raise your hand. That's all of us, okay? We all smart, okay? But you know what smart people do? We calculate. We calculate how we can live in control of our lives getting our stuff tidy and well put together without God being involved. We forget that God is the one who brought us out of our misery, out of our problem, out of our issue, and into the light. And as we go deeper into the light, we often forget that the God who brought us out of Egypt is the same God who brings us into Canaan. We need him every step of the way. And yet we forget One of the reasons why I love talking to folks who weren't brought up in the church. I'm a churchy, okay? I grew up as a little kid. You know, I went to BBS, right? You guys know BBS, right? That's how kids say VBS, Vacation Bible School, right? I just watched a clip of my friend's kid, right, crying. I want to go to BBS. Mommy, BBS. I want to play water balloon, right? Memory verse, right? They would always do this to you at VBS, right? They make you memorize a Bible verse if you want to eat. I don't know if that's good reinforcement or not, right? Like, you will starve if you don't know the Bible, okay? I guess there's some truth to that, but I don't know, right? Still a little conflicted. But I'm a churchy. I grew up in the church, right? I didn't dedicate my life back to the Lord until I was in college. But man, as a churchy, sometimes I just mistake what I've received spiritually as just commonplace. Or something I deserve. Over the years, as I've been pastoring, the people that I get astounded by are the folks who have never had an encounter with Jesus until they're like in college and above. I mean, they might have heard, you know, like they see all their church friends. You know, when you're a non-Christian and you look at Christians, it's really weird. Like Christians, like church people, I need us to understand this, okay? Sometimes what we do is not normal in the eyes of the rest of the world. Why do you come together and you sing looking at like a couple people on stage, you know? Or, or why do you listen to that guy talk about God knows what? Why do you close your eyes when you talk to God? Why do you do all these things? You know, these are very real and good questions to ask. I remember the first time I was ministering to a non-believer as a college pastor. And they were asking me all these questions. It's like, typically the questions you get when you meet with like other like churches and stuff is like, why would God allow predestination? So, you know, I'm arm, I arm myself like, come on. If 
five points of Calvinism, John Calvin, right? Reformation, blah, blah, blah. You know, look at this passage and all that stuff, right? And you feel really cool. You feel really good. But then you get someone who comes in and they ask you the most basic question. I remember someone asked, Pastor Bailey, why do we close our eyes when we pray? I just spent 60 grand to get a Bible education. And I can't ask the simplest, I can't answer the simplest of questions. Why do you close your eyes when you pray? And I said, my goodness, I don't know why. And I started praying with my eyes open after that too, right? I'm learning from a non-believer, right? I'm learning from a new believer. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Because prayer is all about connecting with the Lord, right? See, but one of the things that I love about encountering people who just meet Jesus, perhaps later on, and they're not so cultured, is that they understand what it means to be like a Samaritan. They understand that for years, their church friends have looked at them like they don't deserve anything good. Oh, you smoke? Oh, you drinker? Oh, you do bad things? Oh, God doesn't like bad people. Your kind is not welcome here. I think Luke wants to make a point that this Samaritan was the only one who came and gave thanks because if you position yourself in this man's shoes and you know what it's like to be felt ostracized or left behind by people in the community of God, then you might better understand what it feels like when not the people of God, but God himself in Jesus Christ comes and says, I see you. I recognize you. I got you in my line of sight. What do you need? How can I help you today? The Jews didn't get it. The people who had heard the Bible stories for years and years and years who were afflicted with disease. You see, one of the things I love about this passage is that they don't discriminate. It says that everyone got something. Everyone's got some kind of need. Everyone's got some sort of need for deliverance, healing, and breakthrough. But you see, even those who probably should have had a better understanding of thanks don't give thanks because they feel like they deserve it. It's the Samaritan who comes. It's the Samaritan who teaches this Jewish audience what the substance of faith is supposed to even look like. Friends, this passage here is making a very important connection. It's making the connection between faith, true faith, and gratitude. Now, I need to clarify, okay? Again, the tie between faith and gratitude or thanksgiving. See, we often think that true faith is only expressed by good deeds. We've been talking about this in this season, right? How people often think that to be a good churchy, to be a good church member, to be a good Christian just means that you abstain from quote-unquote bad things. Friends, if being a Christian is simply a behavioral act, then we've missed the point. The issue with Israel in the first century is that they had forgotten their God. They had forgotten him in the midst of their good deeds. They had forgotten him in the midst of their religious acts. They had forgotten him in the midst of so many ceremonial, ritual, laws, and so forth, that they forgot what it meant to just love him. I think that's one of the greatest challenges that we face as a church today. 
It's not just that we lack good deeds. We just lack love. We forget the simplicity that when Jesus went on the cross for you and for me, that he gave us a gift that we could never ask for nor be entitled to receive. Could you stand in front of, of God and ask him to die so that you, who have nothing good to offer, might be saved? Forget that. I mean, think of this. Like, Would you walk up to the president of any country and say, sir, you need to kill yourself for the sake of your people. No, man. You know, if it's like in the U.S., you have like a bunch of CIA Secret Service agents, right, who go, no, sir, I'll die for you. Secret Service agents in Korea, no. We will die for you. You can even ask that from another person. And yet, Jesus, the Son of God, is sent from heaven. He leaves his dwelling place. He leaves the only place that he's known for eternity. And we ask him to enter into the creation that he created. I'm not an engineer. Okay. But it's like saying like, if I build computers, it's like, you turn into a computer. <laughs> That's like an insult to my being. That's an insult to my humanity. That's an insult to my, my sense of free will. And yet, Christ left his own dwelling that he might enter into the creation that he made. And let me remind you, <laughs> this is a silly illustration, but if I become a computer, right? I'm like, well, I get a fresh start. New operating system. I don't know, I'm a Mac user, right? So I like Mac, right? I don't know, Windows 50. I don't know, I don't know what Windows is on now, okay? Right? It's like, oh, fresh start. It's all good. See, but Jesus left his dwelling not to enter a fresh and clean place, but a place that he made that was once pure, now riddled by sin. That he would now have to die for a bunch of people who have no business receiving that sort of healing and breakthrough. But the only appropriate response that comes when you receive a healing like this. I mean, we're so Asian, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking to everyone, right? This is not just an Asian thing, but this is it's just a general people thing. When you receive a gift that's too good, what's your immediate inclination? Unless you're super selfish. If you're super selfish, you're like, cool. Thanks. You got some more of that? <laughs> right? No, but most people, right? You get something that's really extravagant and really grand, and you know what people do? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 please. Please, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm not worthy. No, no, no. We try to figure out a way to pay them back. Friends, if you have ever been on that side of gift receiving, let me tell you something. When someone takes the time to fashion, to prepare, and plan a gift, a healing, a deliverance, a breakthrough, the appropriate response is not to look at them and say, no, don't give it to me. But it's to just say, thank you. It suggests offer gratitude. That's it. Jesus, as the giver of every great and good gift, doesn't want his people to just so look down on themselves where they're saying, no, 
no, no, I am not worthy, don't give it to me. No. We can feel that sense of unworthiness, and yet Jesus deemed us worthy in his eyes to let us be the recipients of this gift. What makes Jesus happy is when his people just come to him and say, Jesus, the gift is good, but thank you more for you. I want to finish up the text. Look at verse 17. It says, And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, this outsider, this outcast, this person who probably has no business even being here in the first place? Was he the only one found to give praise? And verse 19, he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus acknowledges that the other nine, they got their healing, but they didn't walk out with faith. They received level one deliverance. They got their needs covered. And yeah, that was Jesus providing it, but they didn't walk out with true faith. I don't want you to mistake this, okay? I'm not saying that if you are thankful, then you are saved. What I'm saying is when you're saved, you are thankful. The true condition of the person who's received the grace of God looks to him and says, I ain't done nothing to get this, Jesus. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. God knows I'm not fast enough because I got flat feet. I wouldn't be able to go to the military in Korea. Not that I'm excited or longing for that. I am a U.S. citizen, right? But I wouldn't have made it. My feet are so flat, right? Seriously, my, my son has inherited it, so there's, there's absolutely no hope for him becoming an athlete whatsoever. Unless it's golf. <laughs> I'm a golfer, right? So, so I, I love this, okay? Right, but, but what I'm trying to say is, look, when you are the recipient of something so undeserving, you just respond by giving thanks and taking it in. Every saved soul the core of their beings finds thanks to give because it's all we have jesus says i can't take your goodness because your goodness could never be good enough i can't take your good deeds because your good deeds are never a good deed enough i can't take your purity because you're not pure jesus says but i'll take your thanks everything else i'll give to you purity i'll give it to you righteousness what's mine is yours right standing take mine That's why I go to the cross in your stead. That's what I believe fundamentally defines true faith. What's also amazing about this passage is that Jesus doesn't discriminate. Jesus being Jesus probably knew that before he saw all ten of those lepers, Before he even walked onto the outskirts of town, probably knew in the back of his mind, there will be ten, and I will heal all ten, but only one will come. If I were Jesus, and I had the power to know who would love me back and who would not, I think I'd be a lot more selective about how I spend my energy. Right? Prophetic download. Right? Okay, that's, that's not how it always works, okay? Let's just say, Holy Spirit speaks and goes, Billy, that person's not going to like you. 
then I'll be like, you know what? I don't like them either. Yeah, that person has no business receiving anything good from me, right? Prophetic down. Oh, Billy, that person's going to love you. Woo! Come on, brother. Come on. Yeah, what can I do for you, right? We're prone to do that. And yet, Jesus knowing who would respond and who would not still gives himself equally to all ten. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't withhold the healing. And he offers it to all because I think there's something important that Jesus is trying to say. When he says that his offer to save, his offer to heal, his offer to deliver is given out, he's saying, one, it's available for all. And I want everyone who comes in contact with me to have the choice to choose me or not. There's nothing about the faith journey, friends, that's forced upon anyone. Jesus doesn't demand what you don't want to give. He'll take what you have to offer, but he'll never wrench it out of you and us. The Samaritan turns and gives thanks. Miracles and deliverance, friends, they're just part of the process of being set free. He knows what our needs are. They're just part of the process. But because they're part of the process, it's never the goal in and of itself. They're part of the entire lesson. That when God, the giver of every great gift, gives something great to us, He's not wanting us to treasure what was given. He's wanting us to treasure Him who gives. So we talked about level one deliverance. That is Jesus meets our needs. He gives us breakthrough in places where we ask and yet don't deserve. And yet the greater deliverance, the greater miracle, the greater healing, friends, is the individual who would dare look at God and say, Lord, I receive every good thing you have to give, and yet they're nothing compared to you. They're nothing compared to you. You are the object of my affection. You are the object of everything I love. Because yes, I know you can give me stuff. You can give me good health. You can give me all these things. But you know what? Other things in the world could give me that stuff too. But nobody could give me you the way you do. This is the beauty of our relationship with God. Friendships point to this fact, do they not? If you like your friend, just because they're rich, they got a lot of stuff to give, you ain't really their friend. You just like their stuff. Why do we enjoy? Why are we wired to be in the company and the presence of people? Because they give us something. Money, stuff, status, jobs, Wealth, none of these things could offer. Only in the other, only in people do we find someone who is committed to our well-being. And no one does that better than God in Jesus Christ. Friends, as we close, 
when we think about the Samaritan, it's a simple passage, and yet it's a challenging one. Are we thankful? Are we thankful? Sometimes we feel like the greatest expression of our Christian faith is when we do something for God. And yes, God is so kind to give his approval when his people look to him and say, Lord, I do this unto you. But friends, God's not just looking for us to give something. God's just wanting us to come as we are, to be thankful from where we are. Maybe you find yourself in a tough moment right now. Friends, tough moments happen at any given moment in time. You could be a great person. You could be a bad person. God doesn't discriminate in who he invites into the wilderness. And yet, he always gives us an option. Am I still enough? Am I still enough? Maybe you're enjoying a season where God has been giving to you plenty. Often it's those seasons that are hardest to give thanks to God. Because we feel like these things came out of our intuition. Or that promotion. Or that raise came because we're smart enough. Friends, there's nothing under the sun that Jesus himself doesn't ordain to come to pass. Give thanks to the one who uses your intellect for opportunities. But maybe some of you guys are going through seasons. The end's not in sight. The barren land looks like it's going to be forever. It is often in the desert that you find a thanksgiving in your heart that could never emerge otherwise. You know those seasons? I'm really bad at this, by the way. I'm supposed to be your pastor, right? And you often think that pastors are like champions of these things. I want to keep addressing this. I am like us. When something bad happens, I'm not like citing the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, I will not stumble. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm not a machine. I'm a real person with real feelings, real needs, and real issues. You know what? When something bad happens, yeah, I'm a pastor. I study God's word. But you know, sometimes my first question is, the first question I ask God is often the first question I tell everyone not to ask. <laughs> Takes one to know one, right? You know what I do? I look at God and I go, why God? Why me? I'm a pastor. I've devoted all these years unto your service. I'm a good person. Lord, aren't you impressed by me? How are you going to repay me with this? Seriously. Seriously. That's me. And God is the only one patient enough to look at his crazy son and go, I'll wait. You done yet? I saw a video, right? Parent was like disciplining his daughter and she was crying. And he goes, you done yet? I felt so ministered to. That's what God does to me. God has the courage to let me come in front of him and go, Lord, what's going on? And to vent and to air out everything that I tell us not to say, but that's real in our hearts. You know, that's actually biblical. I'm not saying it's good, but it's biblical. You ever read the Psalms? How many times do you see in the Psalms, King David, who is beloved, a man after God's own heart, look at God and he writes it down for us to see for centuries on end. 
Oh, Lord, will you forget me? What? That's King David. King David, who has seen God deliver him over and over and over again. And he has the balls to look in front of God and say, did you forget me? It's mind-blowing. And yet God says, you done yet? Because when you finally get to the end of yourself, you know what I'm talking about? You know, I feel like God is the only person in the whole wide world who has the patience to not say a word and to meet us with silence, to give us all the room that we need to air out everything that's on our hearts. And after that's all done, he says, now what, my son? Now what, my little princess? I'm still here with you. You do not have any of those gifts, any of those things, any of those breakthroughs that you've asked for, but you know what? You still have me. And God says, is that enough? I can't explain and technicalize what that place is like. But let me tell you this. For veterans of the faith who have encountered that situation over and over again, there is a thanksgiving that emerges in that season that affirms your faith better, more clearly than any other deed or act that you could ever possibly present in front of God. When you remember this Samaritan who in his lack who in his game still had the courage to come in front of Jesus and say, thank you. Would you be reminded that it's the safest, best place to be?